Welcome to The Business Grind, where we give you an inside perspective on what it takes to start, build, and run a successful business. Here are your hosts, Danny Shaw and Sean Michael Wellington. All right, hello to everyone in podcast land today. Thanks for joining us, Sean. How are we feeling? Feeling good and ready for a book review. It's been a little while since we've done one. Yeah, it's been a while since we've read, right? We don't be reading like that anymore. <laughs> all right, all right. So um, so on today's episode, we're going to discuss uh, the book, uh, The Psychology of Money, you know, share our thoughts, uh, some key takeaways, and discuss uh, parts that resonated with us and, you know, all that good stuff that we usually do for today's episode, all right? Yeah. All right, so uh, The Psychology of Money is by Morgan uh, Housel. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, that is the author of the book. And yeah, let's let's just kind of get jump right into it. I think the title alone is a bit self-explanatory, which is The Psychology of Money. So the book, you know, really touches on uh, different thoughts of, uh, not thoughts, but just different ideas around how people uh, think about money, uh, their psychological and mental relationship to money, and how that relationship uh, drives a lot of decisions and factors in how they go about it and use it and so forth, and why we see people deal with money in different ways depending on their circumstances and walks of life, yeah? Yeah, that was really one of the big themes of the book. He was trying to, you know, accentuate the fact that, you know, our decisions uh, our decisions when it comes to our financial decisions are based on our experience, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It may seem really obvious when you say it out loud, but it kind of goes into the specifics of two people can see the exact same financial situation completely different. Mm-hmm. So. Right, right. So, I mean, I think, you know, initially the book starts off with we get these stories early on in the book, right? So we, we get... Yeah, what these... did you think of that first story about his, uh, I guess his homie was an investor, investment uh-huh. banker or something? Right. right? You know, these stories are always, whenever I, just not just in this book, whenever I read about stories about people with, like, extreme wealth or how they deal with money, it's, I'm, 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 I'm always intrigued because the mentality and relationship to money is always interesting. So early on, you know, for the people who have not read this book yet, the author goes into, you know, two stories, and one is of just extremely successful uh, investment banker, but, you know, because of their, they were just... I don't know. They were just an ass. I don't know how else to say yeah, it. Yeah, right? I mean, pretty much. That's the way to put it. There's no way. It was like he um he broke a lamp at a at a restaurant right. or something, and it was five hundred dollars. So they made him pay it, and he was kind of like, "What? Don't insult me with that number." What did he give him like five thousand or something? Yeah, yeah. He just he he was very brash. He spent ridiculously. He was very successful financially. He spent ridiculously, 
And yeah, breaking lamps at a restaurant and then being offended that they made him pay for it for $500. And eventually he wound up broke. You know, his behavior, his bad habits, as well as his personality just all contributed to him being broke. And then, you know, on the flip side, they, they told a story about a, a janitor who uh, worked very, you know, a janitor position for most of his life, uh, you know, but stacked his money diligently, invested, saved. And then, you know, at the time of his passing, uh, I think he was, had about a net worth of $8 million and then, you know, used that money, his, gave his money away to charities and, and foundations and became a philanthropist. And it was like two separate spectrums of the situation. Uh, and, you know, one had all this wealth and because of his mental relationship with money wound up uh broke uh and then you have this other person who may have not had all the access and opportunities to extreme wealth as this investment banker who uh died uh pretty well off and became and went from a janitor to a philanthropist essentially right yeah and i thought something that was interesting is um because he kind of the author establishes early that what made him accumulate that money, that $8 million, right, was mm-hmm. investing, like saving, but <clears throat> doing, you know, um, simple investments. Like, mm-hmm. I think, he, I don't remember the specifics, but, you know, like betting, I guess, whichever exchange or an index or whatever right. it is. You mm-hmm. know? So, um, that's what I was interested in. It's like, not only did this person, he was conservative about his money and, you know, didn't waste it, but he also saved his money and invested it. So, right, right. Yeah, I thought those were two good examples to start off with you know for the book just to kind of drive the point home and I'm, i think we hear this a lot like you know especially now we hear the the textbook uh statements and steps is like it's not how much you make it's how much you save and stuff like that and it sounds good in theory but in practice and execution it may not always be attainable right because of because of our psychology <laughs> towards money and into relationship with money right so yeah. I think just starting off with those two stories really just kind of set the baseline on, all right, we're about to get into the nuances and why these things actually happen, you know? In general, overall, did you in, like the book? Did you not like the book? Or So I think I I, I liked the first half mm-hmm. a lot better than the second half. Okay. Um, I feel like the second half kind of, um, I don't want to say it dragged for me, but it just uh, felt like a different book, right? It felt mm-hmm. like we... I don't know if you ever seen one of those movies where, like, you know, the premise is one thing, and then once you get past a certain point, the whole movie changes, and you're like, wait a minute, this is not, like, what the trailers were. So <laughs> that's kind of the feeling I got reading it. But it wasn't bad information. It was all it was all great. It just mm-hmm. wasn't what I was, I guess, expecting as I was reading the book. Okay, so let's go into the, with the first. I, all right, so let's break it down for the people who have not read it yet. You know, I think the first half of the book really goes, like, in the first half of the book, we have a bunch of examples and stories that just highlights various scenarios of people being mm-hmm. greedy, people who had more than enough but still chose, you know, certain made certain choices and decisions that led to their ruin because of their mental relationship with money. And we also see a lot of success stories and their relationship to money and why they were successful. So I think the first half just gave a lot of different stories and scenarios and then gave reasons to why this happened right yeah and then and then the second half how would you describe what the second half of the book covered and like how it was presenting information 
I guess I'd describe it as an application of, of the knowledge we accumulated in the first half. Mm-hmm. So it's practical applications for that, that once you've uh, understood the psychology of money and your personal psychology, whatever it is, mm-hmm. then kind of how do you apply that and make it, you know, work for you? Mm-hmm. That was kind of what the second half was. I right. Think. I've, okay. So I, yeah, I agree. I, so I don't think it, I, I can't talk. <laughs> I think like the first half, as I as I was uh, describing it, but I really I did enjoy the book a lot. The first half of the book, I felt like a lot of it was things that was uh, support a lot of my thoughts on the psychology of money. Because I'm always I always say like a lot of times it's before we talk. You know, nowadays you see everything. A lot of times it's like, hey, do do one, two, and three, and you'll be rich. Or do one, two, three, you'll be successful. You'll have financial freedom. And then, but the fact of the matter is that it's easier said than done. So the first half of the book really felt like it was it was in my head. Like, yes, I agree. I agree. Like, this makes sense. This makes sense. The second half of the book is, is something that I really wasn't expecting, but it hit, it came with a lot of facts. The second half of the book kind of, for me, explained how we, as a, I would say American society, right, um, got ha- how we got to where we're at now with our general relationship to money. And I thought that was very insightful, at least for me, because there was a lot of information that I wasn't aware of, you know, or um, like the socioeconomics and how that has changed over the last 50 years and the, you know what I mean? And the different classes and social con- situations and even stuff about like how back in the day, you know, we only had three television channels and now we have an abundance of different channels and programming and even how that has influenced our perspective on affluent lifestyles and what we think we deserve and what we should, how we should live and the relationship with money that, ties into all of that right yeah i mean he went into a great detail to describe how america americans Mm -hmm. have you know if you look at the numbers right if Mm -hmm. you're just being objectively looking at the numbers and the statistics right Mm -hmm. we're a much richer nation than we than we were before like Mm -hmm. we increased our wealth collectively but the he also showed how the happiness factor i forget exactly what the terminology he used but you know basically the the content of the public mm-hmm. is not hasn't increased right right so it's just an interesting concept that we may feel we may be in actuality richer wealthier but if we don't have that uh mentality tied to it that psychology where we feel like we've gained more then it doesn't really affect our happiness. So. Right, right. So yeah, like I agree. So like the first half was definitely just stories, and then the second half was giving us more, you know, empirical data uh, to kind of help help us understand how we got here. But then also how we could, if we chose to, how we can apply these learnings into our lives. Uh, and like you said, from an it felt like more from an investment perspective, you know. But for me, I also took it. I even though it was like it leaned heavily towards maybe personal finance um, uh, insight and information. I definitely saw a lot of parallels to even business decisions and how you go about that as well, based off your psychology to money. Did it remind you at all of uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad? I was in the beginning. It was feeling a little similar to me. It's, it diverged a lot, but in the beginning, I was like, okay, this is reminding me of Rich Dad Poor Dad. It, it gave me Rich Dad Poor Dad vibes initially, uh, but can oh man, uh, can I say I'm I'm not really a big fan of Rich Dad Poor Dad. 
So. I think we I think you mentioned that in, in a previous episode, so it's not that's not a huge revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not remind us why if we got some new listeners, remind us why you don't I, like that I, book. I, I'm gonna have I haven't read that book in a long time. Uh but I just felt like I think at a certain point the stories was a little bit it was I got the gist of what Riz Dad Poor Dad was about. I'm not against it. I just felt like the delivery and approach was a little it's a little bit much. It was a bit extreme, I think, for me for for the examples. Like it was, I, I'm not really so cut and dry, so absolute in these type of scenarios, especially when we live in a complex world, right? Um, and it just felt like it felt like they were really just beating up on the everyday average working man. <laughs> that's, that's just how I felt. Like you know, yeah. the poor dad was like this, you know, guy who who complained about everything and, you know, which I guess if we look at the world today, there are a lot of people who complain about the jobs and, you know what I mean? And against the government and stuff like that. But I don't know. It just felt a bit heavy handed. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. It just, it just felt a bit much, but it wasn't. So this was like a lighter touch this felt, of the same concept. This felt a little bit lighter. This definitely felt a little bit lighter. And in this, in this case, at least we had more real world examples to show it, right? And like we had real life examples of real people, and I've, it was a bit uh, easier to digest. Whereas Riz Dad Poor Dad was just you just had multiple stories of the Riz Dad Poor Dad and the, the son, and after after a certain point, it kind of I don't know maybe I wasn't the target audience. It's possible, right? Um, but at a certain point, I was like, all right, here we go again. <laughs> so, but. It definitely has some gems, but it early on psychology money did kind of feel that way. But again, with the stories, these being real stories, it made it, I guess, easier for me to digest. Right? Yeah, and then um, I don't want to jump around too much because I don't know where you were going to go next. But I know, but speaking of just real stories, uh-huh. one thing that kind of stood out for me was the him talking about Warren Buffett's like mm-hmm. uh, his rise to wealth and kind of how mm-hmm. the majority of that wealth was accumulated very close to the end of his you know career, right? From mm-hmm. a couple of decisions. So, right. uh, yeah, no, no, we can get into that. I really enjoyed that, and and, and not just that, like what we don't realize is the acceleration or innovation of a lot of things really happens in short spurts. We don't, we, we tend to think like, oh, well, you know, again, we, the instant success, if we're not instantly successful within two years or three years, uh, or we didn't accumulate a certain amount of wealth, then we have become a failure, right? And it's kind of like, well, why do we even think like that in the first place? Why do we feel like, oh, if you start a business today or if you start investing or any venture that you take on in life, if you, you're you not successful in the next two to three years and you're not on the cover of all these magazines and you somehow are a failure, why do we feel that way when the same people that we do celebrate for their success, when we pull back the kernel, just do a little due diligence, we see that their journey was not a two-year journey. It's a lifelong journey. And their success actually didn't come when our mind assumes it it came, right? Exactly. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. So we see like a Warren Buffett who everybody talks about. He's on all the accolades. But again, yes, Warren Buffett, a lot of his wealth and his fame and everything didn't even come to later and towards the end of his career and later in life. And they, they there was also mention of another investor in the book who was as successful, but he doesn't, he's a successful investor, but he doesn't have the same wealth and accolades as Warren Buffett, uh, mainly because he started at a different point, 
right? So even though on paper his returns beat Warren Buffett, but because of the amount that he has and you know the timing that he started, he doesn't have as much wealth as Warren Buffett, right? And I thought that was a good point as well. So it's just like, well, you can you can start where you can start at different points, be technically more successful depending on what the criteria is on paper, and still may not end up with the same results at the end of the game, but still relatively successful in your own right. Right. Yeah, and I think that was, I think it was one of his major takeaways from the book was mm-hmm. comparing yourself, measuring your success against other success mm-hmm. is just a is a is a futile a exercise. Battle. You're mm-hmm. never gonna, you're never gonna reach a success you want if that's your goal is to match someone else's success. Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, it's it's something that even I have to. We we all listen. I I we all have we all fall victim to that, right? Or, or in a lot of cases, most of us do, right? Sure. Um, and I I think, at least for me, what helps me, I always say, focus on what's on your plate, right? I'm I try. I'm not always in front like I always succeed, but you know, you keep track of the competition. I think is very important to just keep track of what's going on around you and be aware of what's around you. But you don't want to set your goals based off what you've seen someone else's success or what appears to be their success because you don't know what they had to go through. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes, right? Uh, And again, if you use that, if you use someone else's perceived success as your own uh, metric for your own success, it's a losing battle. It's it's totally a losing battle. So, you know, what's the cliche? My only competition is myself, right? Is that the... uh, And that's... But it's kind of true. It's like kind of... You'll probably come out better by sticking to that as your main metric of focus and, you know, metric of success than to keep looking at someone else. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I that really resonated. You know, focus on, what, focus on what's on your plate. You, you'll be full. You'll be full if you focus on what's on your plate, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, see, I have, I'm conflicted with this advice, right? Because in the application, he applied it. In uh-huh. the context, he told it. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Right. But I think to myself, there are situations where being inspired by someone else, someone else paving the road for you helps you find your path, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, take every piece of advice and apply it to what makes sense. But that's the part of this advice that didn't resonate with me was that I, there's so many people that I've been inspired by seeing their success, seeing their moves. And I think it's how it goes back to mentality. If you go into it saying, the path this person's paved, I'm going mm-hmm. to continue along it and go further, then that's one thing. But if you're like, man, I need to get where he is. I need to be like him. Right. I think that's where it's a negative and that puts you in the wrong state of mind. Agreed. So. Yeah, so again, that's where the whole psychology comes into play, right? Like, where, where's the line between inspiration and then just feeling like you are competing with this person for the right. same success? And there's a, it, it's not going to be the same for everyone, right? Like, I have a whole bunch of people that inspires me and, you know, it inspires me to want to improve upon my own self and, and do things. But not to the point of now I'm competing and every time I see them get a win, I'm like, well, why didn't I get that same win? That's when it starts becoming dangerous and just not good for you, you know? And I think, you yeah. know, you, you have to be mindful of that. But it will change depending on who you are and how you're wired, right? Right, definitely. Right. And just and there's a couple of other things. There's actually I'm gonna say two. So literally a couple. Two other <laughs> things he said in the book that I was like, I get where you're going, but I <laughs> I don't 100% agree. Okay, so, tell me what's up. 
Oh, I, I mean, I didn't want to jump ahead. I know no, we can jump because this is a. I mean, this is a book that had a lot of things that true. A lot of things that, that can be touched upon. So go for it. All right. So one thing he kind of said, which I don't dis, I don't agree, is he was kind of implying that the past doesn't predict the future. Mm. Which you didn't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I really, I see it. I like history repeats itself. There's uh-huh. so many things where history repeats itself. But I think his point is taken. It's like you don't let that necessarily uh, slow you down or like, you know, paralyze you. Mm-hmm. You can learn from the past so that you make a better decision, but it doesn't, it shouldn't stop you from making a decision. I think that was, at least that's how I took it. Okay. You know, that was a good, that's a good point. That was a, uh, and don't forget your second point. Cause I want to give some feedback on this one. That's a good okay. point. So the past does not predict the future, but we do repeat ourselves. Right. So that was a good point because I think, but you didn't agree with it. I, I understand. I, I got what he was saying. I got what he was saying. Uh, let me see. All right. We do repeat the, we, we do repeat the past. We do repeat the past. I agree with you on that. But at the same time, the way I took it is that the past doesn't predict the future because what happens is in the future, we keep getting these scenarios and then we're like, well, this has never happened before. Right, and he gave a lot of examples of that. He gave too. a lot of examples of that, and it's like, well, it's never happened before, and we had nothing in the past to allow us to help predict this new scenario that has never happened before. So it's kind of a weird balance. Like, yes, the past does repeat itself, but then we tend to think because the past repeats itself that that's an indicator of how we can predict the future, which is not the case. And then when something crazy happens, we're like. Well, this never happened before, and we're, we don't know how to prepare for it because it has never happened before. Our mental, our mind only allows us to think about the future based off what we already know. And right. what do we know? We only know the past, right? So we try to predict the future based off the past, but the past isn't truly an indicator of the future. It's just an indicator of what is possible in the future based off what we already know now. But there's a lot of unknowns in the future that we have no idea what's going to happen. And until it happens, and then what do we say? Well, this has never happened before, right? So that's kind of what I took from it. That, uh, that's, that's what I took from it. And I was like, I see, right? Okay. So wait, what, was, what show is that with the unknowns and the known unknowns. The no, I don't think that was a show. I mean, that was, wasn't that like one of the presidential cabinets? I think that was like Donald. <laughs> I, I, I'm like pretty sure, you know, it, it was a, it was a, I'm pretty sure it was back in my younger days. I think it was Donald Rumsfeld during the Bush administration. Really? Yeah, yes. Defense, the yeah, the defense, yes. And during the Bush administration, when they was talking about the, unknown, the unknown unknowns, I'm pretty if this is a if I had to bet some money, that's what I would go with. But I could be yeah. wrong. But yes, the unknown unknowns, right? You yeah. don't know the future. So, for instance, he was giving examples, and he was like, "Well, you know, uh, um, well, he was talking about the stock markets and investing, and was like, the worst words you can say is this time it's different." Right, that was that was the worst thing you could say. But yet, if you follow investments and you follow stocks and you follow when Everyone, when everyone is saying, yeah, this ain't looking too good or something is happening, 
what do we hear? Well, this time is different. And that's the worst thing you can say, right? Because what you're trying to do is garner support and mess. You're trying to support your mental on why you're making these decisions and support your decisions and your mental, right? And be like, well, I feel good about making this choice because this time is different. But you kind of, I don't want to say lying to yourself, but you're just trying to get that, you know, that bias support to make you feel like you've made that right choice because this time is different, but we hear it all the time. We hear whenever there's a crash or bubble in the market and they say, oh, well, this, this bubble, this crash is different because of X, Y, and Z. It will always be different, but we, this is what the, I don't want to say the lies, but this is what we tell ourselves to support our mental when we go through these circumstances, right? Yeah, and that's kind of what he was talking about is that sometimes it's not about the money in your bank account. It's right. your peace of mind mm-hmm. or your mentality and how you feel. So it's right. like making the investor comfortable right. versus how much money is in the account. Exactly. So, so yeah, the past don't predict the future, but we we, we, we do uh, uh, mental, mental gymnastics is what I like to say. You know, we, yep. we allow our mind to jump through these hoops and do all these tricks just to make sure that we feel a certain way and supporting our choices, right? Uh, so yeah, um, but but you don't necessarily. I, I, I see. I can see why you may not. Agree. I think it wasn't a hundred percent agreement, but in oh. the context, yes, it, it, I agree. But okay. like I said, the only caveat was, well, of course, history repeats itself. We see it all the time. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. okay, okay, cool. And what was your second point? You said you wanted to. <laughs> So you might, this one is not as deep, but <laughs> we getting deep he, over here. he has a quote where it's like, Ferraris don't buy respect. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I think, <laughs> I think there's a level of respect, right? There's a level of optics and there's a level of all of that that goes into business. Uh-huh. And, I mean, look, someone showing up with a Ferrari versus someone showing up in a Camry, whether, you, whether it's right or wrong, you're going to look at them differently. The, the presentation does affect, um, you know, what's inside, like what's inside of the, the package. You're going to care about how it's presented to you. So I'm not, I'm obviously not saying a Ferrari is priority over your, your margins into staying in the black, <laughs> but I'm, but for him to say it doesn't buy respect, I don't buy that. Cause I think, you know, if you have everything else together and you do have the money to buy the Ferrari and you show up to your business meeting in that, they're going to look at you differently than if you didn't show up in that. So I, I didn't, and I'm curious what you think, but I don't 100% buy that optics and perception is a reality. Uh, you know, I think context is key. Context is key. Because I understand the gist of what he's saying, right? And I agree. For me personally, I'm very, my own personal psychology is that, you know, if I, if I see someone with a fancy car, driving a fancy car, to for me, it doesn't necessarily garner respect for me to them. It's just and and he spoke on this. It was like more so you don't necessarily it doesn't carry respect. What it does is psychologically you're like, oh wow, they have a Ferrari. I know how having a Ferrari might make me feel, and maybe I'm inspired to get a Ferrari as well because it will make me feel the same way. Not necessarily that you respect the driver of the Ferrari. Right. Yes. And, yes. And he and he went into very. That's why I like the book. You know, right. I, I said I didn't. I said I didn't care for it as much. But as you're talking it out, I love how he qualifies everything because he went and explained exactly what you're saying. He was like, 
when you look at the Ferrari mm-hmm. and and you leave that situation, what do you remember? Do you remember the person driving it or do you remember the actual car and right. you put yourself in the car? Right. So so and then that made sense to me. That's when it clicked to me. I'm like, you know what, he, he has a very good point. So right. yeah, you're not if if you're a random person on the street and this guy shows up to the restaurant in Ferrari, you're his valet, you're probably not gonna remember what he looks like, you'll be more impressed by the car. But if you're at a business meeting and your client or your potential, you know, client shows up in a Ferrari, you might, I don't know, you might remember that meeting a little bit more than you did if he showed up at something else. I don't know. You know maybe, what, maybe not. But see, that go, this is why this book is about psychology because I, for me, my, my psychology and mental around it, not necessarily. I tend to veer away from, um, in, in business, I tend to veer away from the over. I don't know what the right word is. Like these, well, the over the, shows of. Oh uh, uh, yeah. If if I if I meet someone and we're trying to do a business and deal or trying to work together and they just have one of those personality that is very flashy, boisterous, just always talking. I'm I'm more concerned about the work and what we need to do. And if I just see too much talking for me, I'm I'm usually. It's not something I usually want to engage in, right? Uh, yeah. For me personally. So if I'm at a business meeting, I see someone with a Ferrari. I'm not necessarily saying that that indicates they're boisterous and loud. But if they out the Ferrari and they're acting like one of these characters from, uh, what's that show? Silicon Valley. Like one of them. Tech, I'm going the other way. I don't care how much opportunity is. I, I don't even want to be bothered because my psychology doesn't want to even be in that type of space where I got to deal. I know what comes with that. You know what I mean? And yeah. so for me, it's not, it, it, it's just like, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't even want to be bothered with that, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I think I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I can see where it comes from. I do, it's a mental thing, right? right? I do think some people need to, maybe those aren't the people you want to do business exactly. with. Exactly. People, <laughs> some people do need some people, validation of, of who you are exactly, and what you do, Exactly, right? exactly. Need, need to be Wait, what do you do? Well, well, I don't. They don't understand the concept until you either give them a number right. or or give them a company or right. show something that or like show your riches. And that's and I think I wanted to segue into that next because I was curious how you thought about that whole. He said it amazingly. He was like, "Wealth is invisible, rich is visible." So yeah, it, you know, it, it's kind of contradictory to what I just said. <laughs> but yeah, you know what that reminds me of that that statement. And I mean, I'm. All right, I'm, I gotta qualify this. Right, that statement reminds me of those memes I see that pisses me off all the time. They'll be like a picture of a of a rapper and all his fancy clothes and stuff, mm-hmm. right? And then, then there'll be like a picture uh, Zuckerberg of Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg or, or or Bill Gates in their little plain uh, type of uh, clothing, and they'll put the net worth of the rapper against these billionaires to show how wealth and mentality. I, th- those things annoy me to no end. Uh, it's 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 ridiculous because there's so much context that's missing. Like if you're gonna t- do you really think that these billionaires they have their own level, they have their own world of what's considered a status symbol to them. You know, right. just because exactly. just because it's not a clothing, it's not something that they can wear visibly on them. Doesn't mean that they're, you know, they buy islands. That's their flex, right? Yeah, they're just operating at a different level. At a different uh, level. So I just. There's still still status symbols. There's still. Right, there's still status symbols. Whatever you want to call it. So so. it's just those things kind of annoy me when I see that. So when I hear that statement, what would he say? Wealth is quiet, rich is loud, or whatever he was saying. He said, yeah, he said wealth is invisible. And 
The reason I like the quote mm-hmm. as opposed to the one about the Ferrari uh-huh. is because he kind of applied it to, all right, well, wealth isn't necessarily like like it's invisible because he compared being wealthy to like your freedom at work, right? Mm-hmm. So if your level of wealth one, you can take two weeks off and it doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, level of wealth two. You can talk back to your boss because you're not worried if you can find a new job because you have six months to eight months of savings to mm-hmm. live off of, you mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. It's like you can't see that. It's not something you can visualize, but mm-hmm. I mean, it is something that's real and tangible. It's like you have the ability to be comfortable at work and say whatever you want to your boss because you're wealthy enough where if he fires you, it's not going to affect you. So, so um, yeah. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, that's it. I just, I think when he applied it to those um, examples, I understood it and I agreed. So when he gave the examples, I agree because I'm like, well, I'm very big. I I always had like you make when you're in certain financial positions, you can make certain choices. That's a little bit more riskier and stuff that gives you a bit peace of mind where your whole decision won't be based on how much money you're going to bring in. Right. When you are in a situation where you don't have that financial flexibility and freedom you know, you, you're going to have to eat certain things. You're going to have to eat a, a, a trash boss or manager or, or a company that's treating you a certain way. Sometimes you have to eat that. Uh, if you're in a position where you have more options and financial options, you know, you can you can kind of be like, okay, I'm good. I'm leaving. Um, so I do agree with those examples. I just, maybe it was just lost on me. The whole wealth and rich compare and contrast, I get it. It's it's a it's a bit of a it's an oversimplified statement I think for me uh, to kind of just be like he's right I was like it's a little bit more than that now if you wanted to speak to how we as a society and even business personal lifestyles um, as a society it is it does seems to be a competition on who can be the loudest in showing their success and that's not true well I I could probably get down with that because we are. It's, it does seem like in the business world and finance and investment, it, it does feel like a lot of times there is a competition on who can be the loudest to show how rich they are or how successful their business is. Uh, when, the, when some of these companies that are really doing it behind the scenes are, and consistently for decades on hand are a little bit more quieter. Like they, they, they have their plan and they just work their plan, you know? Yeah, and then also it's a matter of, I guess... Well, perception, right? Perception. They're trying to make themselves seem as though they're successful. Okay. You know what? That That's a good point because I, oh boy, if you think about it like from the business perspective, right? I, you know, we, how many examples have we seen? At least just in my, from the minute, from the beginning of me just getting into the workforce and starting, you know, talk, thinking about business, you had, how many companies we done seen launch and fail, you know, loud, loud, but not successful, uh, speaking to wins that are not real wins, not real wins that's going to help the company last long term, right? Uh, and then you might have a little bit of a smaller company that's been chugging away a bit more quietly, just really making sure that foundation is in order. You know, not being concerned, being very clear on what their goals are and sticking to it and, and changing if they need to, but not necessarily being the loudest. And they're still going a bit longer and stronger than the loud ones, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, 
Yeah. Uh, what did you think about them speaking to, you know, one of the hardest things when it comes to psychology of money and also with business is, I think, to um, to get the goalposts to stop moving? It's hard because it goes back to compare yourself to others, but it's also... Like your 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 goals evolve as you move further down the path, so you see different things for yourself as you achieve. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. At least for me, at least, I don't know if the goalposts will ever not move. Mm-hmm. I think you just gotta celebrate the wins and that. Hey, I achieved this milestone that I was looking forward to. Um, I think that's the, at least for me, that's the way to combat that. But, I mean, most ambitious people, right, your goalpost is always going to move or you're always going to have new goals that kind of come along with the success you achieve. Right. I think, you know, I thought that was a good point. Like, and you just made up a good point as well. It's like, well, if you are ambitious, and especially if you have a business, right, You, you, if you rest on your laurels too long, especially in business, you're just waiting for your own demise, right? Like, you kind of have to still innovate to an extent and see where there's uh, continued opportunities to keep moving forward. Um, so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with moving the goalposts in that regard. Uh, but I do think there's a line when, at what point are you happy, right? At what point are you happy and moving the goalposts won't necessarily uh, contribute to your downfall because you're not happy and, and not appreciative of what you have on your plate right now, right? And there's a fine line. I don't know I don't know what the fine line is. It, it depends on the person, right? Like you can say, okay, well, I've moved the goalpost on this goal or this business idea or personal finance, but I'm happy with what I have now and I, w- I don't really want to do anything to super jeopardize this, but I still want to... I still have other goals I would like to achieve. I think what the issue is, at least with the examples that we've seen in this book, is that a lot of people would move the goalposts. Uh, they've they've moved the goalposts to risk everything they've already accomplished, and that's when it kind of becomes a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not even like you're moving forward. You're almost starting over. Right. You didn't you didn't move the goalposts. You moved the goalposts. For incremental win, possible incremental win in the future, at the risk of everything that you've already worked to strive for and accomplish, and that's that, that's kind of the issue, at least right, at least from my the way I took it, you know, what was that? Uh, he gave an example of uh, Raja Gupta, right, and his story was quite incredible. He was, you know, orphaned as a teenager and by his mid forties, he was the CEO of McKinsey. And for people who don't, who are not aware of, you know, McKinsey is like the most prestigious, you know, pretty, pretty prestigious, excuse me, <laughs> consultant firm, right? Like they are known out here. Uh, his wealth had reached a hundred million. He was worth a hundred million. You know, he, he had it all. There was, he, he won, right? He won already but obviously if he's ambitious you you usually even at that point you don't really stop he wanted to be a billionaire at any cost he was like oh he had 100 million but he still wanted to be a billionaire right uh then he had a side hustle you know um and what happened he had essentially he got some inside information on an investment that warren buffett uh did during the whole 2008 market crash and all that 
and he got that information because of his position in the Goldman Sachs as a board member. Uh, and he learned about it before the public. So, you know, he did some insider trading. Uh, and then, you know, he went went into jail for insider trading, you know. Um, and that's kind of where it's like, well, the goalposts move. Why, why, why are you so concerned over these extra? You have a hundred million now. You can even earn and gain a hundred million more in the future. You've moved the goalposts, but at what cost? You've risked it. You've risked everything you've accomplished for this new goalpost that really, I don't know, like to what end, right? And yeah, that, there's no. It's not. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> this is no other way to say it. It's like, what what are you changing your goals for if it's not right something you're you're passionate about or something that you want to achieve? If it's just you know, based off of everyone else or based off of what's moving around you, I mean, are you really going to be dedicated to, to achieve that goal? E two, right, right, right. So yeah, so I thought that was good. There's a fine line, you know. I think with a lot of these examples, it's really about. Yeah, it depends, right? It depends on the individual. It depends on how the individual is wired uh, and their relationship to money and what's going to make them comfortable, you know. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who are even trying to start their own business or have their own business, all these thoughts and ideas is very, you know, you can transfer to how you operate your business, right? Um, one thing was about the social comparison and that being a problem which, oh my God, uh, that, to me, that really stuck with me, like the social comparison, especially nowadays, right? It's like, you you can be doing well, you can be winning, and based off how you are plugged into the social media scene or just your network, you know, all it takes is one, one vision, uh, you know, checking in on someone else's situation and, seeing how fabulous their life or business may be going and now you start dismissing all of your own accomplishments and what you've already done you know yeah it's it's self-defeating uh <laughs> self-defeating mentality right right so i mean i think yes it's at the risk of sounding like a old fogey right like cut that computer off okay get off your phone to an extent you know it's like don't don't do as much as that social comparison uh, for your own goals and what you're trying to do, you know? Um, yeah. Another thing that I did like was the emphasis that, you know, time is your friend in these matters, which I don't think a yeah. lot of us seem to think or, or, or tend to uh, think about. We, we think, again, we think that if we, we haven't become super successful in two to three years in our business or our endeavors, I mean, even two to three years is considered long too long nowadays people want to be on start a business tomorrow and be on oprah's couch next month right? <laughs> or ellen couch you always the talk show host of the moment uh but I, I really like that whole time is your ally and the stories that kind of shows how that works you know yeah i mean there, he's talking about investing and then when he gets into the specifics of you know investing in in the stock market and things like that it's it's long-term plays it's long-term investments so yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we look at, you know, there was a few businesses that we profiled and one of the takeaways that I've always, or the common thread that I've seen in these profiles that we've done of businesses is that, you know, they didn't like MailChimp, right? Like MailChimp didn't happen overnight, right? 
MailChimp was a slow grind. It was a slow burn. And then now you can't even start a business or do email marketing without someone, without MailChimp being a top consideration on how you do your email marketing strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about Rim and BlackBerry in one of our other episodes. And again, you know, when BlackBerry hit, BlackBerry was out for a while before it hit the mainstream and, you know, became a household name, you know? So, time is on our side. It's just, you know, I think a lot of times we need to be mindful and check our patience level on how we're doing things. Yeah, and then also um, part of what he put in the book is that, you know, mistakes are part of the journey, right? Oh, so that's yeah. one of the things is, like, people are scared to to fail, but your failures lead to your victories. So. All right, cool. So with that being said, uh, would you recommend this book? Uh, to, you know, business owners and leaders or, or whatnot, or even just everyday folks? I think it depends, right? Because I think there's a lot of, yes, is the short answer. I'd uh, recommend the book. But I do think there's a lot of people, uh, yourself included, who are kind of already uh, following a lot of these principles and already, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, move this way. Mm-hmm. But now it's kind of spelled out for you. And, you, and it's, it may have been a thing we were subconsciously doing these things, but now... It's spelled out and it's overt, so you know why you're doing it. So, yes, I would recommend it, but I don't think um, I don't think the advice in it is mind blowing or revolutionary. Oh, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I agree. I agree. I think um, so. Okay, I definitely agree. It's not like um, we've reinvented the wheel with this book, but mm-hmm. I <laughs> right. But I I will look at this book as it's a good reference on how to get back to basics on how you move with money. And money is so key when it comes to like business and your own personal finance because a lot of times we make these decisions but we don't we don't really get into the mentality of why we're even making these decisions. We just think it's it's a good choice and not really seeing or understanding what type of person we are and how that how that impacts how we make these choices, right? So I would totally recommend this book. And it's an easy read. It's an easy read, at least for me. It was an yeah, easy read. So it was. Mm-hmm. It was an easy read to kind of reinforce. So, yes, you're not, you may not, you know, get, you know, breakthrough knowledge and stuff, but I haven't, at least now, up until now, I haven't read a book that really talks about the psychology of how we deal with money and business and finances. Most of the books that I've read so far around this, usually just, it talks about, very targeted areas, right? But not the mentality and how we think about things. So, yeah, yeah, I thought that was good. All right, any, any, I, I feel like early on you had a bit more critique for this book, but it sounds like you kind of turned the corner. But was there any other thing that you didn't necessarily agree with? Or no, I think yeah, I made it seem like I hate the book, like, but no, nah, nah. in actuality, <laughs> I did like a lot of it. Um, I think. So some of the things that stood out to me, I'm just gonna throw it out there and and, and jump at anything that um, you want to like kind of dive deep on. But uh-huh. you mentioned compounding a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And how that's really the path to being wealthy is like compounding your money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one thing he kept talking about, which again, not new information, not groundbreaking, but mm-hmm. when you see it spelled out, you're like, yeah, that's so true. Mm-hmm. Is pessimism is persuasive. He talked mm-hmm. about how pessimism yes, is yes. And I thought that was brilliant because it's right. It's a lot. People listen to the alarmist and the and the, the the pessimist a lot faster than the optimist. It's harder for people to believe 
that something good is going to happen versus something bad going to happen. Right. And I don't know why that is, but it was interesting that he yes. identified that. That was a good point. Yeah, yeah. That, I thought that was definitely a key point when he spoke about it in the book. Um, I, I'm going to say this. The part about compounding and interest and the value of that, I will say this right now. That is not my strongest suit. <laughs> That's not my strongest area. And I know that. I know that about myself, right? Like, I know compound interest. I know the value of it. I totally, there's, there's nothing I can say that would go against why you shouldn't value compound interest. But when it comes to me in applications and doing it, it's like one of the my biggest pain points or blocks. What do you think the hurdle is for you? Why, why is I that? I just think, uh, Compound interest requires a lot of patience, right? Compound interest requires a lot of patience, and we were just talking about timing and stuff like that. And I'm patient with a lot of things, uh, business-wise. I'm, I'm very patient with a lot of things. But um, I don't know. It's just something about the slowness of compound interest that, like, annoys me. I just don't pay attention to it. Like, I, I, I'm in it. I'm I'm exercising it. I'm but it's just like I don't even want to talk about it. I rather, you know what I mean? I get the uh, if if I'm investing in something and it's compound interest and I just got to wait on it, I just rather not even just call me when it's ready, when it's matured and I'm good. You know what I mean? That's, you don't want to watch the pot basically. I don't want to watch the pot cook when it comes to anything I'm involved in that regards that that you know, involves compound. I just rather let me call me when it's ready type energy but i understand the value of it i'm not knocking it it's just my psychology to it i'd rather be involved in other things that you know don't require it. it's not a slow a slow simmer you know yeah that's no that right. makes sense and, yeah. and i don't think yeah i don't think that's a dis, uh a dispute of it i right. think it's just look i can't be bothered watching, watching. <laughs> right i'm just like ah, i don't want to but yeah. i there's value i totally wouldn't disagree with the value of that so yeah all right so yeah, so we good, Sean. Any 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 parting words before uh, you know, before we break up? No, I think you know. Despite my initial uh, <laughs> the review, it's a really good book, really valuable. It'll make you uh, like kind of understand some concepts that you may have already had in your head, but spelled out a little uh, more overtly for you. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and thoughts around this book, and hopefully provided you with some value as you navigate through your business journey and personal life. As always, if you have a question you would like us to answer on the show, shoot us a message on any of our social media channels or shoot us an email at questions.businessblindshow.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and share on Spotify and iTunes. See you again soon. In the meantime, keep grinding. The Business Grind is for entertainment purposes. Opinions expressed are those solely of the host and guests. Please consult with a professional and exercise discretion before engaging in any business endeavors. I'm out here on the grind. I'm out here on the grind.